Welcome to the Grace Downtown service. We're so glad that you've tuned in. We, like you, are anxious to get back together in person, and the staff has started working hard on considering all the details that it takes, and we will have word for you soon on that. But just know that we are excited to see you in person and look forward to worshiping together with you in person. Uh, you can go to our website, Grace B3, or the app, Grace B3, uh, to get updates on what's going on here at Grace. And please know that we continue to pray for you, uh, for your family, for your friends, for our community during this time. We're continuing in our series of, in the book of Exodus. Tonight's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command to you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, Grace Community Church. Pastor Steve here. It's good to be with you here for service. Before we jump into our sermon uh, from Exodus, I did want to mention a couple of quick updates regarding coronavirus. We continue to go through a season of trying to figure out how we should operate as a church and operate as a body. And we have a couple of quick updates. The first is that starting this week, we are working with our community group leaders to develop some protocols for how they can begin meeting in person again. For several weeks and a couple of months actually, community groups have not been meeting in person. And so we've been working with a couple of teams at church, uh, including some members of the uh, scientific and health community, to figure out what is best to do. And so we are providing some protocols for our community group leaders to think about how they could start meeting in person again. So if you're in a community group, you may be hearing something from your community group leader soon. Now, just because we are providing some protocols doesn't mean that everybody's going to open immediately and start meeting in person. Groups are going to look a little different about how they work through this, and groups are going to have to kind of tailor-make their approach to meeting again in person. So know that that's coming, and you can be talking with your community group leaders about that. Also, next week, next Sunday at service, we are going to have an announcement about when we want to start meeting again in person for service at both campuses. So that announcement should be coming next week, and we're excited to offer that. We hope that you all are doing well during the middle of this season as we continue to uh, grapple with coronavirus and we're praying for folks and we want to pray that God blesses you, God encourages you, and that God continues to use us to be an encouragement to others during the season. So today we're continuing on in our message from uh, Exodus. We're working through the book of Exodus this summer and uh, today's message we're going to talk about how God sends these plagues to Egypt. This is probably the most famous portion of the book of Exodus. If people know the book of Exodus, they usually know about these ten plagues or these ten signs that God sends to Egypt as he's delivering Israel from Egypt. And what we want to talk about today is that these aren't just plagues in the form of punishment. God is not punishing Egypt. God is actually performing signs to communicate something. And what he's communicating is that he, the God of Israel, 
is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. This is a contest between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. And so we want to look at that today. Now, as you hear that, you might say to yourself, whether you're um, a Christian or not a Christian, you might say, well, I don't worship idols. I don't bow down to gods of wood and stone. Most of us in, in the West, we don't do that in Western culture. But there are other ways that we can be idolatrous. We might not bow down to an idol of wood or an idol of stone, but all of us tend to have idols in our lives, functional idols, idols that we put in God's place, we treat as more important than God. We worship by sacrificing to them, and we expect things from those idols. What we want to talk about today is how those idols are powerless in comparison to God and why we should keep God at the center of our lives and worship him above all other things and why it's important to do that. Lord, we just want to thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy for us. We thank you that right now during this difficult season, it's such a difficult season for so many reasons with coronavirus continuing to work its way through our country, but also now with a lot of things going on with racial injustice and now uh, discord politically, we ask that you would help us, Lord God. Help us to be reminded that you are our savior. Help us to be reminded that you are in control of your world and that you ultimately are what we need above all things. So help us to find our hope in you and to take joy in you. And then, Lord God, we pray that you use us as your instruments in the world and you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we had a sermon uh, talking about how God sees Israel's oppression. He sees that Israel's in bondage. He hears their cries. And he also remembers his covenant with them. And so as a result of that, because God sees the oppression of his people, he hears their cries and he remembers his covenant with them, then he moves to act. And how does he move? He raises up Moses to be a deliverer, to deliver Israel from Egypt. And so this week what we'll see is how God now uses, begins to use Moses to confront Pharaoh and to begin to lead Israel out of bondage. We won't go all the way through this week to see how God definitively leads them out of bondage, but we see in these plagues and in these signs how God begins to use Moses to confront Pharaoh and to begin to lead Israel out of bondage. And so we see how God is going to do this. This is in Exodus 7, verses 1 through 5. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So this is how God is going to begin to use Moses. He's going to send Moses and Aaron into Pharaoh, and they'll have to confront Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let my people go, let God's people go. And then they're going to perform these signs, and these signs should be powerful demonstrations of who God is to communicate to Pharaoh, you need to let God's people go. But as Pharaoh is hard-hearted, then God will ultimately... Uh, use these signs then as acts of judgment that will ultimately bend Pharaoh's will so that he will let God's people go. But I want to focus on two things here from these five verses. 
there are two things I really want to highlight here. First of all, uh, God is going to use Moses and Aaron, and he will multiply signs and wonders, as it says in verse 3. He will multiply signs and wonders in verse 3. And often when we think of the plagues, we think of them as plagues. And they are. Many of these things are plagues. A plague plague of gnats and frogs and flies. They're clearly plagues in many ways. But here in verse 3, chapter 7, calls them signs. And that's important. Because signs communicate something. Signs point to something. And here, these signs are pointing to the fact that God is God. They're pointing to the fact, they're communicating that God is the God. He's over all gods. Verse 5 says as much. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. How will they know? They'll have seen these signs where God communicates through his acts who he is. And once Pharaoh knows who God is, once he grapples with that and understands that, he will ultimately let Israel go. But it will take a lot of acts and signs on God's part to ultimately get Pharaoh to that point. So let's jump into these ten signs and look at them. We'll actually look at the first nine. We won't look at the tenth one. That'll be for a later sermon. So before we even get into the first sign, there's a preview to the signs. And that preview comes in Exodus 7, uh, verses 10 through 13. It says, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So what I want us to notice here is that this is a preview to the signs, but it sets up a pattern that largely follows in all of the signs, all of the plagues that follow. First of all, you see the God of Israel going into contest against a specific God in Egypt. We see this with the fact that the staves become snakes. Snakes in Egypt were often associated with a God. And so when Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a snake, and then the the Egyptian magicians, they throw down their staffs and they become snakes. This is a picture of the God of Israel going against uh, these gods, this particular God who's associated with snakes in Egypt. And the second thing that we see in this pattern, it shows up in others, is that the God of Israel overcomes. He proves victorious. How is he victorious? Aaron's staff swallows up the staffs of the magicians. This is a picture of the God of Israel conquering this God of Egypt. And then thirdly, there's Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh's response is always this hard heart, whether that's Pharaoh hardening his heart or God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We see in all these responses, at one level or another, Pharaoh is hard-hearted. Over the course of these signs, Pharaoh's heart starts to show signs itself that it's softening. But even as God lifts the plagues and removes the plagues one after another, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart, or God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So these are the three things we see in many of the plagues. You see God doing battle against a specific God in Egypt. You see God overcoming that God. And you see Pharaoh still proving to be hard-hearted. So let's jump into the first sign. The first sign is in Exodus 7, verses 14 through 18. And this is the Nile being turned to blood. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him 
and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So again, the God of Israel is in a contest against a specific God in Egypt. In this case, it's the Nile. The Nile itself in Egypt was worshipped as a God. But the God of Israel is doing battle against the God of the Nile. And Yahweh overcomes. How does he overcome? He turns, his power is able to turn the water into blood. But Pharaoh has a hard heart. Now, how does Pharaoh have a hard heart? We see in Exodus 7, verse 22, it says this, The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. What did they do that was the same? They also were able to turn water into blood, just like Moses and Aaron were able to turn the Nile into blood. And when Pharaoh saw that, he says, maybe Yahweh is not as powerful as our our gods. Maybe they have the same power. So it causes him to have this hard heart. Why should I respect the power of your God if my magicians can do the same thing that you all did? And so he has this hard heart and does not let the people of Israel go. And so God sends the next sign, the second sign. And this is in Exodus 8. We don't have time to read through all of these, so I'll summarize some of these from here on, on out. Exodus 8, we see God uses Moses and Aaron to bring frogs all throughout the land of Israel. Again, frogs were associated with, with a particular Egyptian god. So this is Yahweh doing battle against this particular Egyptian god, and Yahweh overcomes, but in a really interesting way this time. It's really interesting how this unfolds. So Moses and Aaron are used by God to bring these frogs into the land, and they're everywhere. They're infesting everything. They're in people's beds and bedrooms. They're in the kitchens. They're in the oven. Could you imagine going into your kitchen, and you want to go make some sourdough, and you open up your sourdough starter, and there's a frog? Like, that's the level to which these frogs were invasive. They're everywhere. I grew up on a farm, and we would often go frogging so we could have frog legs. As much as you might want to have frogs when you go frogging, this is not a picture of what you want. This is too many frogs, way too many frogs. My dad one time uh, had a biology professor in college who said, uh, I need frogs so we can do some dissecting in, in the college classroom. Gary, I know that you do some frogging. Can you gather some frogs? And my dad said, yeah. So he and his buddies, they went frogging that night and got a whole bunch of frogs and brought them back to this university professor and said, here are the frogs. And one of my dad's buddies opened up the bag and the frogs just started leaping out everywhere. They went all over the house and they had to spend the rest of the night spending hours trying to find every last frog. This is an infestation. It's no fun having frogs everywhere in your house. And this is what Israel and the Egyptians were dealing with. But here's how God proves his power. So, so what's interesting is that the Egyptian magicians also produce frogs. They match this act. They produce frogs that add to the frogs in the land. But what does Pharaoh say? This is uh, Exodus 8, verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron, and he said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. It's interesting. He says, You go plead to your God. He doesn't go to his magicians and say, will you guys take care of these frogs? Because they can't take care of the frogs. Already Pharaoh is starting to recognize the only one that can deal with 
with this problem is the God of Israel. He's starting to understand that Israel's God is the one who's powerful to deal with this situation. And so Moses and Aaron, they plead with God, the frogs are lifted, and then it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Once the plague is gone, once he's out of trouble, then he hardens his heart and he will not let Israel go. Then there's the third sign. This is also in Exodus 8. This time God uses Moses and Aaron to bring gnats across the land, gnats that are everywhere and infest the land. What's interesting is that in this plague, finally with the a third sign or the third plague, the magicians in Egypt try to reproduce this one, but they can't. The magicians cannot reproduce this particular sign. So it tells us all of a sudden the power of Egypt's religious magicians and sorcerers is meeting its limit as the power of God is being displayed. And what's Pharaoh's response? A hard heart again. And the magicians in Egypt, they look at what's going on and they say, Pharaoh, look, this is the finger of God. God is at work here. Not just our gods, but the God seems to be at work here. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen. He would not listen. So this pattern continues largely throughout the rest of the signs. We don't have time to look at all of the signs in particular, but uh, you'll see them throughout Exodus 8, 9, and 10. There's the plague or sign of the flies in Exodus 8. As you get to Exodus 9, there's a plague with livestock. There's a plague with boils as humans have boils on them all throughout Egypt in Exodus 9. Exodus 9 also shows hail coming and destroying much of the land. Then you've got locusts in Exodus 10, and then there's darkness in Exodus 10. That one in Exodus 10 is really interesting because it's this way of the God of Israel doing battle against the sun god. In Egypt, as God brings darkness over the land, it shows that even the God of Israel is more powerful than the sun god in Egypt. So in all of these, you've got God going to battle against the gods of Egypt, showing himself more powerful, and Pharaoh struggling to recognize or to concede that this God is powerful. And even moments when he does, and he says, this God is God, and he repents and uh, calls upon Moses and Aaron to plead with their God to lift the plague, and the plague is lifted. Once trouble is in the hindsight, Pharaoh again hardens his heart, or God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he refuses to let Israel go. So there's some important observations we can make from these signs. Several important observations we can make. First of all, who is this God? Who is the God of Israel? His signs start to communicate and make clear who he is. Increasingly, Pharaoh recognizes who God is through God's acts. And Egypt recognizes it, and the people of Israel should be recognizing it too. First of all, he is a God that is more powerful than Egypt's gods. He's more powerful than the God of the Nile. He's more powerful than the sun god, than the God associated with snakes or frogs. He is more powerful. He's more powerful than the magician, magicians. He's more powerful than Pharaoh. Even Pharaoh, this mighty king of Egypt, is putty in the God of Israel's hands. He can harden Pharaoh's heart at his whim. God is more powerful. Secondly, we see, who is this God? He's also the God who's over all creation. He's over all things. So God creates light at the beginning of creation, but God in Exodus can also bring darkness. God is the one who causes man in Genesis 1 and 2 to have dominion over the animals, but this God over creation can also work in such a way that it reverses that. And now animals and creatures are starting to have dominion over people in these plagues. In so many ways, God is the creator in Genesis 1-2, putting good things together, and then in these plagues, he is kind of pulling that creation apart and turning it upside down. 
but then he puts it back together. He is the God over all creation. And unlike the gods of Egypt, where you have a God of the sun, who's kind of over that dominion, a God over the Nile, God over that dominion, the God of Israel is over everything. He's over every dominion. And this God uses creation to redeem Israel. Creation is put in this God's service. He uses it in his service to redeem his people. These passages tell us who God is through his signs, through his acts, through his deeds. But also we see in these chapters the idols, that these lesser gods, these false gods can be really seductive. And why is that? It's because at some level they do have power. At some level they do deliver. Look at the, the first several signs. The magicians in Egypt are able to turn staves into snakes. They're able to turn uh, water into blood. They're able to bring frogs upon the land. There's something real that they're able to do, and that tells us that there are real spiritual forces in the world that are not aligned with God and not aligned with his angels that we should be aware of. But it also tells us that they're not as powerful as God. But even as you turn from those kinds of forces, you think, you know, I don't, I don't worship other gods. I don't believe in those kinds of things, or I'm not actively worshiping spiritual beings or idols that aren't God. There are other idols in our lives that we can worship, and they also deliver for us. All of us have idols, even if we're not bowing down to wood or stone. If there's something in your life, there's something in my life, that we put in God's place, we hold as more important, we give priority to that instead of God, and we worship, we sacrifice things to it, our time, our effort, our money, and we expect it to give us something back that becomes an idol, especially when we elevate it above God and worship it more than God. We sacrifice to it more than God. Those things could be things like a career success. We sacrifice time and effort and money. We sacrifice time with family for career success. Those are sacrifices that are made to it, and we expect to get something out of it. Sometimes it's financial success that maybe gives us a sense of security. Sometimes it's a sense of success, that I am a worthwhile person. Look at what I have achieved. We want other people to see that and say, good job, you're a worthwhile person. We want something from those gods and from those idols, and that's why we sacrifice to them. So they're appealing. Lust can be an idol, and it delivers. That's why we keep sacrificing to it. That's why people keep sacrificing to it. Social media and developing an identity for ourselves, we keep sacrificing to it because it provides something for us. When you put a post online and you're trying to craft this image of yourself, when I try and craft a witty you know, image of myself that I think people would affirm and say, hey, he's a pretty neat guy, and then somebody clicks like, that's where that God satisfies and delivers. So they're seductive because they do deliver at some level. But ultimately, these gods and these idols reveal their powerlessness. That's what it says in the text. Uh, Egypt's magicians at some point could not compete with Moses and Aaron's god. At some point, their magic ran out of power. And at some point, the idols of Egypt could not contend with the god of Israel. And the same is true in our experience with our idols. How many of you have sought achievement and you attained it, and you still did not feel satisfied. I remember I felt this call to become a, a teacher in my life, and I knew that would mean I needed to pursue a master's and a PhD, so I began pursuing those. It took eight and a half years in school to finish both of those. Eight and a half years, on top of already doing four years uh, of undergrad work, 
My wife and I both made huge sacrifices for that. Now, I felt that was a call from God, but there were moments in my life when I felt I was pursuing this as an idolatry. As an idolatry. Maybe if I just have those letters behind my name, I'll feel good about who I am. Maybe I will feel satisfied that I'm not a, a kid from the sticks who has to be ashamed of his background or feel like I'm less than other people. Maybe I can feel good about who I am. Maybe I'll have made something of myself. And I remember all those years of working and working hard and having this contest between I'm wanting to serve God with this degree, but also these sinful moments of feeling like I'm actually serving this degree for self-serving purposes to make something of myself. And finally getting that degree and getting the cap and gown and walking across the stage and you know, shaking hands and getting a picture with my advisor and all these parties and remembered thinking, I thought the success would feel more than this. <laughs> I thought this would be a little more satisfying. I thought the success and the satisfaction, satisfaction of that success would last longer, but it didn't. And I've talked with a lot of my friends who also have PhDs and would say the same thing. I thought I would feel satisfied and happier longer. Our idols don't satisfy. They run out. Lust, it can satisfy us at certain moments, but then it starts to run out. It starts to show us that we can't be satisfied with the next sexual experience, and then we long for more, and we get to a point where we're sexually desensitized. There are people who are struggling with that these days because the idol doesn't satisfy and then finally, these gods and these idols are also costly. They ask a lot from us, but then they also ask us to sacrifice a lot for others. So there are times in my own life when I try to pursue a sense of like a career success. I get so focused on that. I'm so single-mindedly focused on that that I can't see the needs of other people around me. And all of a sudden, I'm not God's instrument to bring his goodness to others. I don't care about them because I don't even see their needs. I'm focused on my idol. It's dangerous. Idolatry not only doesn't satisfy us, but when we give ourselves to the idols and sacrifice to them, we also have blinders on our eyes to the fact, to the point that we can't see the needs of other people around us. And so as I pursue career success, I'm sacrificing my family and their well-being. I'm not caring for my children. As I pursue my own hobbies and I have to have time for my hobbies, I don't see the needs of my neighbors around me. Idols are dangerous. They don't satisfy for us. They can become costly to us and costly to others. So what does it mean, as we close, what does it mean to know the true God of Israel? Exodus is not all that we see about God. It's not the only place where we see who God is. We see God demolishing these idols and showing how he's greater. But the rest of the Bible also gives us a bigger picture of who God is. And I really want us to draw into John 1. John 1, verse 18 says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him known. If you want to know who God is, we see him through Jesus. It's not just through the deeds that God did in Exodus. Those help us to begin to see who God is. But most clearly, we see it in Jesus. Jesus has made God known, and he's made God known through some very powerful acts. We see this in John 1.29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, this Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is the act that shows us who God is? It's when God comes into this world and dies for sinners, lays his life down for people who have given themselves to idols, who have not worshipped him, but have worshipped all these gods of the world. We've hurt ourselves and we've hurt other people as we 
grip our idols and pursue them, and yet God comes to the world to die for idolatrous sinners like us so that we could be forgiven and we could become his children and we could have everlasting life. This is a powerful difference between idolatry of the ancient world and what we see going on with Jesus. Idols ask us to make sacrifices to them in the hopes that we can bend the ear of that God. Maybe that God will hear us. Maybe if we sacrifice enough to them, they might care for us and give us some meager scraps from their table. But when you look at the God of Israel, we don't have to clamor to him to bend his ear. He has already made a sacrifice on our behalf. It's not about us offering sacrifices to him to hopefully bend his ear on his own initiative. When he's looked at our sinfulness, when he's seen our wickedness, our wretchedness, how we don't care for him, we don't worship him, we hurt other people, he's seen all of that, and he's already come to make a sacrifice, and the sacrifice is himself. He dies on the cross to forgive us of our sins wash us of our sins, and then to say, now I will shower you with every possible blessing you could want from these idols, everlasting life, peace, joy, fellowship with other people, eternal life with me. Your shame will be washed away. Your guilt will be washed away. He gives us so much as he's come to be our sacrifice, even when we weren't asking for it. So today, I'd like to invite us to place our faith in Jesus, whether you're not a believer or are. Say, God, show me my idols and show me how I can trust you, how I can know your love and your grace for me and experience all that you have for me. Lord, show us our idols. Pray that you would show us how they're weak, they're futile, and then show us your great power, but also your great love for sinners like us. And help us to place our lives into your hands, to confess our sins, to receive your forgiveness. And then, Lord God, to experience the rich blessings that you have for us. And we pray that it would all glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be with you today. I hope you go in grace. I look forward to seeing you again.